Can you remember far enough back to remember your first belongings? Like the first things that you claimed as yours? Maybe you had a little treasure box or a shoebox or some kind of secret hiding spot in your room. And you had those precious little treasures. Maybe they were it was a toy or a baseball card or you know, something like that. Can you also remember back to your brother or sister stealing your precious belongings? I can. It was traumatic. It's so traumatic, in fact, that at a very young age, we learn to delineate what belongs to us, right? Part of that delineation is keeping it in a safe and secure place. Now, nowadays, kids have like retinal scanner, you know, safes or something that they keep their toys in. But when I was a kid, it was a box. And we, you know, so you hide your box. Maybe even on your stuff, you would inscribe your, you know, mark it with your name or initial or something like that. I'm not going to tell you which kid, but their initials are JB. And uh, and he he marked his room like on the wall, like etched with a knife, you know, like into the door jam. So, uh, at the parsonage. Yeah, so thanks for that. Because this is his. This is my area. These are my belongings. They belong to me, right? And then if there ever was that moment when they have to go to parental small claims court, you remember that? When you had to go, there was like a dispute, an ownership dispute over whose toy was that or whose room is this or whatever. And then the the parents would have to adjudicate and render the verdict, right? You got to mark what's yours, people. You got you to have proof for the parents to show, no, this is indeed mine. You see, because we mark what belongs to us. In the same way, in the book of Revelation, especially the part of this vision in chapters 12 to 14, remember God gave this vision to the apostle John. He was facing a life, uh, the end of his life in exile. And the church at that time was also facing tremendous difficulty in the eyes of the Roman culture. And so here God gives the Apostle John this vision. And in Romans 12 to, or excuse me, in Revelation 12 to 14, we, we have this picture of the enemies of Christ. We have Satan depicted as the dragon. And then we have Satan making use of these two beasts. There's a land beast and a sea beast. And the sea beast is worshipped instead of the Lord. We have like the unholy trinity, the dragon and the two beasts. And the question is, who belongs to who? Which one do you belong to? And then there's even a mark that goes with those who worship the beast. And then there's, there's a, a mark in the vision. It's a, a mark that's on the forehead or on the hand that says they belong to the beast. They worship the beast. But then there's also a mark, a seal on the believers in Revelation. That they're protected from the wrath of God. And so it's really a question of really who do you belong to, right? Who's loyal to the beast and who's loyal to the lamb? And as we've unpacked chapters 12, 13, and now on into 14... We've seen the urgency kind of tick up here because here's the reality. It was true 2,000 years ago and it's true today. Sometimes worshipers of the lamb are tempted to worship the beast. Now you're thinking, Pastor Ryan, I've never worshiped a sea beast. But remember, as we went through that vision, we talked about how that beast is, is representative of all the things that we worship instead of God. So when we worship money, when we worship approval, when we worship political power, when we worship position and career or education or whatever, when we worship something else, when we value something else more than we value God, when we put that in the primary place in our heart, then we are worshiping the beast. Sometimes worshipers of the lamb struggle with worshiping the beast. And sometimes worshipers of the beast 
look like worshipers of the Lamb. It was true then, and it's true today. Sometimes people who go into churches where they worship Jesus and sing songs about Jesus, sometimes those people have no genuine love for Jesus. They have not trusted Jesus. They are associated with other Christians. They are culturally connected to the church because of their family or because of the community in which they live. But at the end of the day, they're not worshipers of the Lamb. They're worshipers of the beast. They just hide it well. Now, already this morning, you might be hearing the dragon whisper in your ear, and he's saying, this is not that big of a deal. What does it matter if you worship the beast a little? What does it matter if you, if you just compromise a little and give a little here? Yeah, it doesn't really matter if you're that different from other Americans. It's just, be normal. Be like them. It's no big deal, he whispers. But what we learn in our passage today is it is an eternally big deal who you belong to. And for that reason, we benefit this morning from looking at this part of the vision of Revelation. So let's unpack it here, starting in verse 6. We're going to ask this question, who do I belong to? Am I worshiping the beast or am I worshiping the lamb? Now, this part of the vision has three angelic announcements, okay? Three angelic announcements. And so we're going to unpack these and see what's going on. In verse 6, we pick it up here with another angel. So, uh, of course, in apocalyptic visions, the angels are the guides that they take the prophet or the apostle along and they show them the things and sometimes they explain things. So here in chapter 6, we have another angel, okay? And he says that. Then I saw another angel. This angel, though, is flying high overhead. Some of your uh, translations might say in the midst of the heavens, but the, the idea is really high, okay? High altitude, with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This angel is flying high because the gospel has to go everywhere. And this part of the vision is very likely a picture of the work of the church. That that since Jesus' resurrection, he's commissioned the church to do just this, to go to all these nations, all these tribes, all these people, uh, people groups, and to spread the gospel. The, and notice how he describes the gospel here, though. It's not just gospel. What does your Bible say? It's the eternal gospel. But this is the thing that lasts forever. This is, if you're looking for the long-term investment, this is it, right? And so he says, here's this angel, and he's pronouncing, announcing the gospel throughout the whole earth to all these different nations, tribes, languages, and people, right? It's going to all the different people groups. So the good news is being announced. There's a little debate here. Is this literally just the good news that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead? Well, it definitely includes that, but it actually probably includes the entirety of the biblical message that God is the creator, and that as the creator, we were created to be in fellowship with him, but because of sin, we have broken that fellowship, and so we are not in fellowship with him without a remedy, without rescue, without redemption. And so the Messiah, Jesus, is that redeemer, but those who do not trust in that redeemer, those who do not take refuge in Jesus— They will ultimately face the judgment of God. So there are two destinies, one of two destinies for human beings eternally. And if you go to verse 7, he continues with this first angel's message here. He says, he spoke with a loud voice. Like think about it as an angelic megaphone, right? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, if we unpack this message, the fundamental message here is a call to worship. 
So the, the terms fear God and give him glory, those are worship terms, right? So the idea is that to fear God means we have a, a realistic appraisal of God's majesty and his, and his glory, and we respond in worship, in awe, with reverence, right, to the Lord. And so here, this is a, a faith-based response. It's not fear of God that I fear judgment. The angel's saying, no, fear God, meaning turn to him, be in awe of him, submit to him, he's saying. Give him glory. You remember in Romans chapter 1, when the apostle Paul talks about the effects of sin on people, he talks about they exchanged the glory of the immortal one, and they exchanged it for what? To worship creatures, worship animals, worship ourselves. And so here, this angel announces in connection with, or as basically part of the gospel proclamation, fear God, submit to God, Why? Verse 7. Now watch it. Okay, why? Fear God. Give him glory. Worship God. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. As as John receives this vision in the first century, this is a component of, or one of the dominoes that has fallen in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, do you remember, I don't know if you remember, but in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus, we have a summary of Jesus' preaching of the gospel. And Jesus says there, in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. But the time is fulfilled, is, that's kind of an important phrase because what Jesus is saying is, I've come. Like, it's here. And his ministry, especially his death and his resurrection, that means we're in the last age. The world is now ready for judgment in the sense that there's nothing else yet to happen. Jesus can come and judge the earth. The earth. That's, we're there. We're ready for it. So even in the first century, as John shares this message to the other churches uh, scattered around in Asia Minor, he says, yeah, here, this message is for you as well. Because the hour of judgment has come. There's an urgency to the worship question. Again, the dragon whispers, you could get to that Jesus stuff when you're older. That's something that you do in retirement. That's something you can do you know, once your kids are out of the house. But here the angel announces, fear God now. The time of judgment is here. It's imminent. Like this is your, this is your warning. And then he says, worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. We're getting really the whole picture, right? Worship, well, we're all going to worship. Who should we worship? Well, worship the creator, the one who made it all. Don't worship the creation. Don't worship yourself. Worship God. The emphasis here on God being creator, it's not just that he created the universe, it's that he also sustains the universe. He didn't just create the earth, he created water. And there's a a reference here to the springs of water. Why does that matter? Well, if you don't have springs of water, the water doesn't do the earth much good. So the springs here, they just remind us that God created the earth and the fact that the earth provides for us. He's the sustainer of life. He's the sustainer of your life. Nobody draws a breath without God's sustaining providence, right? So he says, worship him. The angel cries out, worship him. Worship him now. See, the gospel is a worship issue. The gospel is a worship issue. It always has been. And you need to ask the question this morning, what do I value What is it that matters most in my heart? And that's a moving target because every day we value different things. So we have to ask the question, what do I value most? Do I value money? 
Maybe I value money just because I want it, or I think it'll make my life better, or it'll let me have a particular status, or experience particular things, or I just want certain possessions, right? Or maybe I worship and I value most social media, which sounds a little bit ridiculous, but I want approval. I want to be liked, or I want to be in style, and so I'm constantly looking to social media for seeing what is the culture doing and do people approve of me and what I'm doing. Maybe we worship and value entertainment the most. We just want some peace, and the easiest way to get peace is to escape from this world. So I'll escape into a fantasy imaginary land. Maybe I'm worshiping career because I believe that getting that next position or having that that, that spot of power and influence, that's what will give me meaning, or that, that education, that particular degree. You see, we're all tempted to worship something other than the Creator. The question is, who do we value? You know, if you want to know, am I right now in a state where I'm worshiping something that, that isn't God, if I'm, am I valuing that the most? You can ask these questions, okay? Will I sin to get it? Will I sin to keep it? Do I feel like I need to hide it from other followers of Jesus? Is it where I put all of my time and energy and, and attention? Those are all kind of diagnostic questions. You can just ask, oh, well, am I, what am I worshiping? Who am I worshiping? Is, is God's judgment actually good news? It's kind of interesting here because he doesn't, the angel doesn't specifically reference Jesus' death and resurrection, even though it's called the eternal gospel. Now, we, can, we read the whole Bible together, so we know obviously it's included in that. But why does he focus on God's judgment? He focuses on God's judgment, and just don't miss it. Because in the context of Revelation, in the first century, believers worshiping in Asia Minor who are getting imprisoned, some of whom were executed, right? They're, they're, on, they're on the bottom of the social scale, right? They need encouragement to know that the day is coming when God will make those wrongs right. Remember the, the souls of the martyred saints in chapter 6 who were pictured huddled under the altar and they're crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? How long until the, this wrong is made right? And so God's judgment is actually good news. You might want to write that one down because it's not a popular view today. God's judgment is good news because it means God is finally making those wrongs right. He's finally issuing his verdict on sin and evil and death. Which means those days will come to an end. The days of sorrow and suffering and failure and hurt. So yes, God's judgment is good news. So there's an urgency to the worship issue. Again, Satan's strategy in our culture especially, he just is like, just get distracted. It doesn't really matter that much. And just, if you want to know if something matters, if God sends an angel to announce it on an angelic megaphone at 30,000 feet across the whole earth, I'm guessing that's important, right? We need this one. This gospel is for all people groups. It's wonderful that we have Paul and Stephanie with us this morning because it's just a reminder that it's hard work to get the gospel out to all of these different groups but it's, it's, worth that is, it's work that is worth the effort. So you could ask the question this morning, okay, who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? You need to be honest about that answer. You, you could also ask, in light of that, if, if I'm not worshiping the Lord, have I ever? 
Because maybe you're reading Revelation this morning and you're like, I, I don't, I, when you talk about God's judgment, it scares me. Not in like a holy fear of God way, but in like a, oh man, I'm in trouble kind of a way. And there's this opportunity just to know that there is eternal good news for you. And yes, judgment is part of it, but it's not judgment for all. And so there's an opportunity perhaps this morning for the first time to believe in this good news, to trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't settle for cultural Christianity. Don't settle for being in a family that has Christians in it. You need to be a worshiper. You need to fear God and give him glory. And the first step in doing that is humbling yourself and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's also an urgency here to the church's mission to see the gospel go out to the ends of the earth. It's not an optional part of our calling. It's an essential part of our calling. We are called to make and mature disciples of Jesus, not just here, but all over this planet to the degree that God gives us time and opportunity. And I would just tell you this, that uh, there are churches all over this planet that are laboring intensely to see this work happen, okay? But the church in the first world, especially in the United States, has been blessed uniquely with finances and the ability to travel in ways that not everyone has. And so I'm just telling you that for in God's sovereignty, he has put us in a time and a place where we can get anywhere on this planet within a day, and we live in a culture where most of us have the funds to make that happen. And so there's, a, there's an urgency for the, the gospel to go out to the world, and there's an urgency for us as a church to be proactive, to be leaning into this work, okay? And I just want to encourage you this morning that, yes, there, you'll have opportunities individually to share the gospel. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But collectively as a church, we need to continue our work of leveraging our funds and our time to see the gospel go out here and to go to the ends of the earth. So that, that might mean that in your budgeting for this next year, you may have a line item that has a missions trip savings fund or a, a, a special missions gift savings fund where I'm going to set aside funds. I'm going to proactively take some of my vacation days and I'm going to leverage them for the eternal gospel because what is more urgent than anything else on this planet is the need for people to fear God and to worship Him, to turn to Him in faith. The gospel is a worship issue. Now, our culture doesn't worship God as a whole, on the majority. We don't live in a distinctly Christian culture. We may have at a certain time, we can argue that, but we certainly don't today. And the fact is, our culture is, is willingly worshiping the beast but it, it, one day that system will come crashing down. And that's where the second angel comes in. Watch the second angelic announcement, that announcement here in verse 8. So he says, actually the second and the third, but we'll do the second first, right? And another, a second angel followed, saying, It has fallen! Babylon the Great has fallen! She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Okay, so let's pause here. This verse is chock full of Old Testament illusions. Okay, so let's just wrap our minds around this. Okay, so who has fallen? Babylon the Great. Well, who's Babylon the Great? Well, if, you, if you're up on your Isaiah, you would remember that Babylon was one of the nations that conquered ancient Israel. And so Babylon is, in some senses, even in the Old Testament, used as kind of a stereotypical representative of nations who have cultures that are against God. 
Just like culturally speaking, on the whole, they're standing in opposition to the God who created this universe. And part of that is oppression of God's people. Part of that is just the spreading of violence, of taking advantage of others, and of uh, spreading the message of immorality. Now, the language that's used here is that she, Babylon the Great, made the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. We're not limiting this here to sexual immorality, though. That's an Old Testament image for idolatry. In the Old Testament, idolatry is pictured as unfaithfulness, Israel's unfaithfulness to her husband, to the Lord. And so the idea here is that Babylon has this message. It doesn't matter who you worship or worship the gods of Babylon or worship the gods of our day, right? That's the message from Babylon. And so that message incurs the wrath of God. It brings wrath at the end of verse 8. So the angels flying over and the angels announcing Babylon is down. The system is down. It's finally crashed. This is not bad news. This is actually good news. And frankly speaking, so as we read in Revelation, we're going to find out. For the first readers of Revelation, Babylon was Rome. In fact, it says Babylon, you know, it's going to talk about Babylon being built on seven hills. Well, that's Rome. So in Revelation, that's what Babylon pictures. But what is Rome? Rome is the culture, the government, the society that is postured in a way that says, we do not want you to worship the creator. We're not in favor of everyone worshiping this creator. We might tolerate it, but in fact, maybe we won't tolerate it. Maybe we'll oppress it. Maybe we'll persecute these followers, right? And we fast forward to today, and we see that Babylon easily represents our culture. A culture that says, we don't think this gospel message is healthy or good for everyone. In fact, we certainly don't want you going around talking to people about the judgment of God and hellfire and brimstone. See, coming soon, okay, in a few verses, right? So, in fact, in our culture, they want Babylon to succeed. We want Babylon to grow. We want Babylon to prosper. But insofar as Babylon is rebellion against God, it is good news for the system to go down. If the system is perpetuating worship of the beast, then it needs to go down. And so that's a little bit sobering because on the one hand, we don't wish for our culture to be, you know, to be harmed. We don't want unbelievers to die. We want them to trust in Jesus, right? You know, so that's, we're, not, we're not, you know, masochistic in that sense. But the fact is, we live in a sinful culture. And the sin of our culture needs to be dealt with. And it needs to be said that, that the sin of our culture incurs the wrath of God. That our culture deserves judgment. And we need to be able to say that in, in accordance with and in agreement with what we find here in God's word. Now that judgment is not just for the leaders or the king of Babylon, right? It's not just for the rulers, especially the rulers we don't like, right? But actually, it's for anyone who has an allegiance with the beast, who belongs to the beast. Watch verse 9. We get to the third angel, and another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the cup, drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Did you catch the urgency in this announcement? Okay, here's the eternal gospel. The time of judgment has come. Worship the Creator. 
Babylon's gone down. The system is down. And the fact is, anyone who has allegiance to the beast, anyone who is marked as belonging to the beast, who is a worshiper of the beast, who has said no to the lamb and yes to the beast, that person will also drink the wine of God's wrath. Again, that's another Old Testament image, the drinking of a cup of wine as as God's wrath from the book of Isaiah. But the fact is, it's not, that's not reserved for just the, the baddest of the bad, the worst sinners, the most influential sinners. This is reserved for anyone who has rejected the lamb and who belongs to the beast. And that cup of wrath is poured not uh, mercifully diluted, but it is poured full strength. Some of your Bibles say unmixed. Unmixed, CSB is good here. Full strength with all of its potency. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. Um, the, the fire is, of course, maybe a little foreshadowing there to the lake of fire that we'll see in Revelation chapter 20. At the end, the eternal destiny of all those who've rejected the Lamb, all those who worship the beast, that's where they're headed. And so that's highlighted here as torment, but it's torment that vindicates the goodness of the Lamb. So that's why it's in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. It's because there's public vindication of the fact that the lamb is truly glorious and good. And that smoke of that torment, by the way, goes up forever and ever. There's no rest day or night, the angel says, which is hard. In fact, there are many people, in the, even in uh, Christian churches today, who would want to teach a doctrine that's called annihilationism. They would say, well, yeah, there's going to be judgment, but it's not forever and then you'll be judged for a time, and then you'll just poof, cease to exist. But the fact is, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear, actually. Both Jesus and the apostles are very clear that this, this torment, this suffering as judgment for sin is eternal torment and suffering. So again, there's an urgency to the question. If we're back to Satan whispering and the dragon whispers, it's no big deal, it's no big deal, it's no big deal. These angels are crying out as loud as they can. It is a huge deal. It's everything. Why? Because belonging to the beast brings eternal judgment. Belonging to the beast brings eternal judgment. Again, I know you're here this morning and you're thinking, Pastor Ryan, I'm not worshiping the beast. Okay, I don't have some kind of weird statue at home I'm like bowing in front of. If you do have a weird statue at home that you're bowing in front of, stop doing that. Don't do that. That's weird. No. That's not how we're, in our culture, that's not, what, that's not what idolatry looks like. But we might be worshiping the beast in unintentional ways. In our culture, the god, or maybe goddess of pleasure. If it feels good and I want to do it, it must be right. And anyone, any Bible, any God who says otherwise is wrong right? That's our culture. Maybe we worship the God of people where, you know what? The majority can't be wrong. Okay. The God of career. Again, we've already talked about the God of money or possessions. For some, it's the God of safety. The God of physical safety. I I have to live a long life and a comfortable life, and I'm willing to do whatever I have to to get there. A long life is everything. In our culture, a long life is extremely important. Did you see, there was a news report this week that said life expectancy has gone down in the United States. And it's like panic mode. Life, life expectancy is only supposed to go up. We've got a problem. Yeah. So, okay, well, belonging to the beast then is going to result in eternal judgment, which means you need to be careful 
about what you're worshiping. The fact is, those who reject the Lamb will receive eternal judgment. Now, I can hear it already. Objection. Isn't that a little too harsh? Isn't eternal judgment, fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur here, the eternal smoke of this offering of of judgment going up before the Lord forever, no rest day or night forever, isn't that a little much? Well, that's our culture talking. And I'm just going to give you a couple of thoughts on this as we try to understand this part of the Bible. It's not the only place it talks about God's eternal judgment of the wicked. But here we go. The, the first and primary reason that we believe that eternal judgment isn't fair is because we underestimate God's holiness and the seriousness of our sin. Okay? We're just past it culturally. So the idea of an eternally holy, righteous God, it just doesn't play well in our culture. So we just don't have a capacity for that. We, we don't have a framework for that in our worldview. And what goes along with that, then, is a downplay of the seriousness of sin. We live in a culture where the message fundamentally, and the message actually systemically, like given an official kind of uh, presentation in, from the government and in schools since at least the 60s, has been, you know what, um, you are fundamentally a good person, and you're, you're fundamentally going to be okay. That you don't really have a major problem. And the problems that you have are probably done to you. They're not a result of what's in you, Right? And that's kind of been the messaging. And so if, and especially if you get in a context where people are going to be talking about sin, oh, it's too much. We just can't. It's too negative. We can't have that. It's harmful. In today's day and age, they would say it's psychologically harmful to talk about sin. Well, let's just take that worldview and let's try to map that onto, let's just say Isaiah chapter 6, another apocalyptic vision, where the prophet Isaiah is summoned into the throne room of God and he is overwhelmed by the glory of God. And what Isaiah doesn't say, and just trust me because I know the Hebrew, what he doesn't say in Isaiah 6 is, sup, bro. Okay? I've looked at the Hebrew words. Not even close. We're not there. Isaiah falls on his face, and he cries out, woe is me. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner. And I live amongst a people of unclean lips. I live in a sinful culture. He says, what was me? Now, there's no no way we can give people the eternal gospel without confronting the fact that we are sinners who, outside of rescue, deserve eternal judgment. And just, just to complete that thought, though, before we run on, in the vision, what happens? God graciously calls one of his angels who takes a burning coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips to purify him, to cleanse him from sin with the sacrifice, with the, the, the coal from the altar. So sacrifice takes away sin, right? And there's a little foreshadowing of the gospel right there that, that God provides the sacrifice to take away sin so that even though, yes, we are, we are people of unclean lips, we can be cleansed and we can be rescued. So there's even good news in that moment of recognizing, wow, if I don't have any kind of covering, if I don't have any kind of atonement made, I do deserve eternal judgment. The second reason why God's eternal judgment is fair, is, or why we might struggle with it, or why we need to be okay with it, is that God's judgment is retribution. Meaning, the goal here is for God to make wrongs right. Okay? It, his, his goal is to make wrongs right. And ultimately, there must be a judgment of evil and sin to get that done. So there's no way around it. 
And so this idea that wrongs can be made right without there being retribution, it's just, it's not realistic. It doesn't deal with the reality of things, on, of the situation on the ground. Thirdly, and maybe most significantly, as we think about the eternal nature of God's judgment, ongoing punishment for sin is likely due to the fact that sin and rebellion against God continue in the hearts of unbelievers for eternity. We have no indication that, as we'll get to the end of Revelation, that upon the end, all of a sudden, Satan finally repents. And the demons finally repent, and unbelievers finally say, okay, we want to be loyal to the Lamb now. They certainly will be aware that they picked the losing side. But the fact is, there's still, there's still a, an ongoing presence of rebellion against the Creator. They'll hate the Lamb for winning. They hate God for His righteous standard. And they'll hate the saints who humbled themselves and trusted in Him. And that sin and rebellion, as it continues forever, is, warrants eternal judgment. So just be careful that the culture has not desensitized you to the fact that we need to realize that belonging to the beast brings eternal judgment. Now, when we think about this image of drinking the cup, you know, Babylon the Great, you know, they forced everybody to drink this cup and everybody went along with it and drank the cup. And anybody that worships the beast, they're going to drink the cup not of, not of pleasure, but of judgment, right? There's an irony in that. Oh, drink it. It's going to be great. No, it's not great. You're drinking unmixed, full-strength judgment from God. That's what you're drinking, right? As we think about that, it's scary. But we just need to acknowledge that reality, that it, that it is true, that sinners deserve judgment. But I just want to encourage you with the fact that when Jesus was headed to the cross for us, and he's there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he would be betrayed, and that's a one-way ticket from the garden to the cross there. You remember as Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, if it's your will, let this, what did he say? Cup pass from me. But not what I will, but what your will. Your will be done. And when he says that, what Jesus is saying is, I will drink the cup for them. The imagery that Jesus is drawing on there when he prays about the cup, he's talking about the cup of God's wrath. The same exact thing described here. And you know what Jesus said? He said, I know they're sinners and they're people of unclean lips and their culture is a disaster and all of that. But Jesus said, I'll drink the cup for them. I'll drink the cup for you. I'll drink the cup so that instead of belonging to the beast, you can belong to the lamb. That's why it's eternally good news. That's why it's an eternal gospel. Because Jesus has made the way for sinners to become saints. He's made the way for rebels to be rescued and how did he do it? Well, he did it by drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin. And that's exactly what he experienced when he was hanging on that cross. Painful as it was physically, what hurt the most was Jesus drinking that cup, the cup of God's wrath for your sin and for my sin. And he did it because he loves us, and he did it to rescue the church for his glory. There's a sobering reality here that we must be vigilant Lest in the end we prove we don't belong to the lamb, we belong to the beast. Watch verse 12, as now we have a, kind of a conclusion. And this is either continued words of the angel or possibly uh, the apostle John. Most translations take it as continued speech from the angel. Verse 12, there he says, This calls for endurance from the saints, the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. So if we just pause there at verse 12, this calls for endurance from the saints. Now, we've had that already in chapter 13. It's repeated for us here. So you might be sitting here going, so what? 
Okay, big deal. So God's going to judge everybody and the end's coming. Okay, I get it. And those who belong to the beast, they're going to be judged forever. So what? Well, so what? Buckle up. That's the so what. Get ready to endure. You need to persevere now because who you belong to, where your loyalty is, who you worship, that means everything in the moment. Not that it determines whether or not you're forgiven, but it shows your allegiance. It shows who you belong to. So that's why he says, this is a call for endurance. This calls for endurance from the saints. The, the promise is not, oh, I'm going to take the church out of the world and you're not going to experience any of these hard times. No, the promise is it is going to be really hard to stay loyal to the Lamb. That's the message. It's really hard to stay loyal to the Lamb. Like that's not news for you and me. We know that. And we're not in a culture where Christians are imprisoned. It is really hard to stay loyal to the Lamb. So brothers and sisters, you got to endure. you got to prepare to run the race. you got to prepare that it's going to be a long one, okay? You're not going to phone this one in. It's not going to be a light jog around the neighborhood. It's going to be tough. Who are the saints? We're the, those are the ones who keep God's commands and keep their faith in Jesus. Theologians call this doctrine the perseverance of the saints. Those, there, there are many who say they believe. Well, who are the ones who have actually believed? Well, over time, we'll see those are the ones who keep their faith. Those are the ones who continue to follow the commands of Jesus. That's why there's an urgency to belonging to the Lamb or belonging to the beast. Because if you're struggling with worshiping the beast and you struggle more and you struggle more and you struggle more, you give in and you give in and you give in and you continue to do that over time. And it's the consistent pattern of your life and there is no worship of the lamb. It's only worship of the beast. The only reasonable conclusion you can make is that you don't belong to the lamb. And, and unfortunately, John delivers this vision in Asia Minor to churches where it was a mixed group. Where some people were worshiping the lamb, absolutely, but others were worshiping the beast. And so this is a call for endurance. And brothers and sisters, I know right now, today, that there are people in this room who are worshiping the beast. Your primary allegiance isn't the lamb, and it never has been. And that is not okay. Because belonging to the beast brings eternal judgment. But belonging to the lamb brings eternal rest. Watch verse 13. This is what we're all looking for. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, and likely this is the voice of God himself, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This t-shirt does not exist. I've looked for it. (laughs) Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. What? There's a lot of blessings uh, given in the Old New Testament, but (laughs) this one's unusual. Blessed are the dead. What is he talking about? Well, the fact is that in churches in Asia Minor in the first century, they all knew people who had been killed for their faith in Jesus. And so here in the vision, God says, take take this blessing to the churches. The blessing is that you'll never suffer and it's going to be easy life for you, right? And all that. No, the, the message is blessed are the dead. It's okay if they kill you for faith in me. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. When he says from now on, uh, that's a reference to the, the increased persecution that was happening in the Roman Empire, and that persecution ebbs and flows until the end. So from then on, and it doesn't mean there's not blessing for those who died before that time. He's just saying as the persecution increases, it's not like you're less blessed, okay? 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And then, yes, says the Spirit. So here we have the, the Trinity, an agreement here, right, in this vision, saying, yes, this says the Spirit. The Spirit agrees. Why? So they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. This is the picture. It, it's, it's contrasting the fate of those who worship the beast with those who worship the lamb. Those who worship the lamb, should the Lord tarry, you'll die. You might die being persecuted. Probably not, but you're going to die. And whatever the source is of your death, you are blessed when you die in the Lord. Why? Because you are at rest. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Immediately upon your death, you will be consciously in the sight of God, in the state and near, near to God in the throne room of heaven, enjoying his presence forever. And upon the resurrection, that kingdom of heaven comes down to earth. And you will be reunited with your body and you will enjoy that peace forever. But notice the language here. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors. When is the time for hard work? The time for the hard work is now. The time for laboring for the Lamb is now. This is where it's difficult because of sin complicating things. This is why it's work to get the gospel out to the nations. So the message is, brothers and sisters, Christian, let's go. Let's do this work. Let's persevere because upon your death, whenever day that comes, you will be at rest. And what follows you to heaven? Not your money and not your worldly reputation, not your job title, and not even pictures of your grandkids, scandalous as it is that I would say that. What follows you? Your works. What does that mean? Your works testify to the fact that you were a follower of the Lamb. And just to be really clear, this is not a uh, we do works so that we can get into heaven message. This is a your works, your transformed life is evidence of your faith message, right? But if your life doesn't show the works, that's a problem. That's a warning sign. Belonging to the Lamb brings eternal rest. This message is fundamentally repeated throughout the Bible. You remember Philippians 1, where the Apostle Paul, as he was in prison, actually, potentially going to be killed. He wasn't at that time, but it could have happened. And he wrote to the Philippian church, he said, to live is Christ. Yes. And then he said, to die is gain. Paul says, if they kill me, it's okay, because blessed are the dead. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Brothers and sisters, does your life show that you believe this? We could go to 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. There, I put it there in your bulletins. But this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. Why? As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen, your job, your career, your education, all the stuff, the material possessions, your phone, your house, your car, all that stuff, it's temporary. It's transient. It doesn't last forever. But what's unseen, our, our faith in the Lord, our worship of God, our pursuit of the Lord and the decisions of our life, what's unseen, he says, is eternal. That's the whole, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's like, it's okay that we got beat up for your sake. It's okay that we got beat up for your sake. Because it's not about my body. Belonging to the Lamb brings eternal rest. This rest is what you're looking for. It's, there's such good news here. Because we're all looking for it, and here it is. 
and it will be truly glorious. Johnny Owen, my buddy Johnny Owen said it back in the 1600s. Their happiness is their rest. Their rest is all the happiness they can be partakers of. You, it will be literally impossible for you to be happier than you will be when you're with the Lord. When you're at rest with the Lord. Sorry, Disney. It's not the happiest place. The happiest place is with the Lord. And it will eventually be a place on earth, so we can steal that from them. So persevere. Say no to idolatry. Stand out. Share the gospel. Listen, you're, you're likely not going to be called to be imprisoned for the gospel. You're likely not going to be called to lose your life for the gospel. But you know what you will be called to do? You will be called to be known as a believer at your school or in your workplace. And that's going to come with heat. And you know what this, this part of the vision says? Take the heat. Persevere. Take the heat. Let them know. You, you got to take a stand. And do your job. Be faithful. Be a good student. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't slack on your responsibilities. But take the heat. You know what you're going to be called to do? You're going to be called to have that conversation with a coworker or a family member about the Lord. And it's going to be tough. And it's going to be awkward. And maybe it's going to lead to hard things in the future. But the, the angel says, this is a call for the perseverance of the saints. Take the heat. Embrace the awkwardness there. Um, because I'm a pastor, I live in a perpetual state of awkwardness. I don't know if you know this. Um, but we get to know people, you know, we, we, get to, we do talk to, to other people. It does happen. And there's always this moment when they say, what do you do? <laughs> and like, I kind of want to like just video them a lot because they're like, and yeah, oh, I'm a pastor. And then they're like, they're like stand up straighter, you know, and they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, and then they just remember they just swore a bunch like in the last five minutes, like, oh man, <laughs> you know, and then they're like, and then they kind of do this with like, you know, they're like, they want their distance. Yeah. Yeah, it's awkward. But blessed are those who die in the Lord. So we can take that heat. We can take that heat. We can invest the, the funds and the time in seeing this gospel message advance in our community and across this world. Why? Because blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Because those who belong to the Lamb, they receive that eternal rest. Uh, Spurgeon talked about, you know, Spurgeon ministered in, in London in the 1800s, right? So the, the English Reformation was only a few hundred years before that, and so there were a ton of martyrs during the English Reformation. In, in Bloody Mary's reign alone, 300 were killed. And so he, that was still fresh in the, in the minds of uh, British culture, and so he was actually preaching this text, and he talked about those martyrs, and some of them were taken uh, down into dungeons, especially some that were Baptists. They were taken down into dungeons, and they were drowned. In, in like not out, some were burned at the stake in public view, but some were just taken into dungeons, and just they were just drowned in these dun- dungeons, mocked by these guards that were doing this work. It was heinous work. It was evil work. And, uh, and, they, and Spurgeon talks about the laughter of the guards echoing out in the dungeons. In those moments, just brutal. But then he said, talking about the person that was dying, he said, The ear of faith can hear ringing through the dungeon the voice, 
Blessed are those who die. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. And Spurgeon's like, yeah, they, they paid the price. But they didn't die in vain, and they didn't die hopeless. They died experiencing transition into eternal rest with the Lord. It's not always clear who belongs to whom, but sometimes it is. And brothers and sisters, the question is, who do you belong to? Belonging to the beast brings eternal judgment, but belonging to the lamb brings eternal rest. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for this warning passage, these three angels, Lord, talking about this eternal gospel, the warning of what will ultimately happen to sinful culture, and Lord, what will happen to individuals who have allied themselves with the beast. Lord, we ask for your help. We pray that you would equip us to persevere right now. Lord, that we would be ready to follow you, to be a witness, to be ready and willing to answer questions and to talk about the weirdness of Christianity to our culture. Lord, we pray that we would be ready to do what we need to do to see the cause of the gospel advance worldwide. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who know that they have no allegiance to the Lamb right now. And I pray that you would convict them of their sin, that you would, Lord, help them to see that to drink of the cup of your wrath is no picnic. But Lord, may they also see your goodness and that you are not only going to judge the wicked, but you have made a way for the wicked to become righteous. So we pray that you would do this work. Lord, we pray that you would equip us as a church to follow you, to persevere in difficult times, and as we do so, to be a light, a shining light in the midst of a dark people. And we ask that you would be glorified as we, as we trust you more, as we walk by faith. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.